0: Welcome to Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations. I am your host, Brittany, and I am so happy that you are tuning in today. Um, This is your first time listening to Conscious Pathways. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I don't always sound like this, I promise. I got a little bit of a cold and I record my intros after the fact. So the rest of the interview will sound very, very normal. Um, It's just the intro that sounds a little icky and I apologize. Uh, So I will go ahead and just speed through this intro so you don't have to be exposed to how icky I sound. Um, But today I am joined by the magnificent Casey Stockstill. Uh, Dr. Casey Stockstill is a sociologist, uh, assistant professor at Dartmouth College and a race scholar. Her work mostly focuses on race, class, and the micro level of social life. Right now, her research is really focused on childhood, which is why I brought her on the podcast today to talk about her new book, False starts. It's an ethnographic account on how young children experience segregated preschools. It is such a wonderful book and such a great conversation. We talked about everything, race, class, preschools, uh, segregation. It is a really fascinating book to read. Uh, Casey has so much knowledge and so much great information to share. So I'm so excited to share that with you. So let's hop into that interview. Hello and welcome to Conscious Pathways. I am so excited to have Casey on with me today. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Brittany. It's great to be here. I'm so excited (laughs) Um, to have you on. And, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I've been reading your book, False Starts, and it has been such a wonderful book so far. Um, I'm like 75 to 80% done with it. And I have been truly, deeply, and just really enjoying it. And I do think that it's just like required reading for early childhood educators and um, anyone who's going into the education field to just... Learn this really important topic. So, yes, already just fangirling over this book.
1: <laughs> Two seconds into the book. Thank you, thank you. I'm so like, especially from folks who are in early childhood. It really, you know, is an honor when people read it and when they find it meaningful. Because you hope you're not just kind of stating the obvious, I guess. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that that makes sense. And sometimes it is good to even state the obvious because it might be obvious to me or it might mm-hmm. be obvious to someone else, but to someone else, it might mm-hmm. not be completely obvious so mm-hmm. i do that all the time mm-hmm. too when i'm just like i don't think people want to know all this information and then i'll get feedback and they're like no we, we, i didn't know that like what do you mean i'm like oh okay <laughs> yeah because sometimes you're in an yeah, echo chamber so you're hearing true. the same thing so i hear mm-hmm. the same things about anti-bias all the time just you know all the different tests mm-hmm. all the different data like i hear it non-stop so sometimes i forget mm-hmm. that if you're not intermeshed in it constantly you're not hearing about this. So I'll just like casually spout out some data and some of like, wait, what? And I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> let's back up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of early childhood, so, you know, I always like to know, you know, why early childhood, why was this an interest of yours and like, kind of where did you get your start within early childhood?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, It started for me in, college when I was an undergraduate student and I just needed money and I needed a job I had babysat before so I knew I liked children but I got a job as like a teacher aide at a head start and would spend oh maybe 15 hours a week working there being with the children and kid like they were they were three and four right and kids are just so observant and funny and um honest and at the same time i was taking classes in sociology and like you know reading Mm -hmm. fancily written theories about the social world but just comparing that to the Mm -hmm. kind of honesty of four-year-olds and their takes on things i just kind of got hooked and so that inspired me to do this project observe for Mm -hmm. two years in a head start preschool mainly and then later in a private uh, preschool mm-hmm. because i wanted to hear more about what kids thought about their experiences yes yeah.
0: yes and i i do love that like again incorporating children's thoughts because you know sometimes we forget to do that you know like you said we we get enmeshed mm-hmm. with these theories and and ideas mm-hmm. and concepts around education and like kind of what best practices is and you to professional development Mm -hmm. and we're learning like how do I be a better teacher how do I do this but not often we're hearing like youth voices and especially not in early childhood Mm -hmm. because we're not really thinking that you know like their voices are going to add anything but like they're the ones experiencing it so Mm -hmm. you know like it's Mm -hmm. important that we're seeing their perspective and that we're hearing their voices because they really do have just unique ways of thinking about things (laughs) Um, and they're just such fascinating little beings and so I I agree I love you know learning from children and you know every time I'm in a classroom it just makes me think about things in a completely different way just the way that they experience the world Mm -hmm. because it's all so new and like Mm -hmm. the way that they're experiencing it and the way that they're going about life in it is so fascinating and it just reminds me to also just Mm -hmm. be in the moment sometimes and just yeah, you know what? You're right. That is a beautiful rock. Let's take five minutes to look at it
1: (laughs) Yeah, and just feel
0: it and talk about it. And it's those, it's those little things to us that in my everyday life, I really don't stop to look at, you know, these small, like a little pebble. I don't stop to look at a tree in that special way, but like kids do. And they're like, Whoa, look Mm. at it. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you're right. That is cool. Mm. (laughs) Um, So their voices are important and their voices do matter. Um, Mm-hmm. And so with your book, False Starts," um, you know, it talks about segregation in preschool and it takes place in Madison, Wisconsin. And so I know you talk about it a little bit in the book, too, but, you know, why Madison, Wisconsin? And, you know, what was your, um, you know, ideas for studying this, these particular preschools?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, the book didn't start out as being about segregation. Okay. When I began the research, I wanted to tell the story of uh, children of color who were from poor families who are at preschool. and I my um, advisors, because I was also completing my PhD, my advisors were like, "Oh, you should do a comparative study, um, compare it to something." And I was like, "But why? Like can we just let these kids and their experiences stand alone? Um, and then towards the end of the observations, so I spent two years observing in this um, head start preschool in Madison. And I was just like, you know, what is it? There might be aspects of Head Start or um, aspects of Head Start or aspects of like structural inequality that matter for what these kids can experience. But I just can't really see it because I'm only in one place. And then I went to the private preschool, which I call Great Beginnings, thinking... um, okay, it's going to be pretty similar. Like, they're both rated as high quality. They both say they're play-based. They have experienced teachers. And I was actually very shocked at how different, like, many things about daily life were in the preschool. So then the book became about segregation. Um, And so thinking about Madison, Wisconsin, it's actually not... It's, like, surprising and not surprising that these things happen there. Um, So Madison has... uh, Madison has its own like city funded preschool access program. They call it four-year-old kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And that allows parents to get some, some hours of free preschool in community-based centers or in the public schools. So they have that going. They also have a city-based subsidy for childcare Mm -hmm. that like layers on top of the state's subsidy for childcare. And so those things should be improving access to preschool. Like that should be improving Mm poor families' ability to access preschool. Mm. And then the other layer, anyone who knows Madison, um, it's a pretty progressive city. Like it kind of has a strong progressive activist base. Sometimes it's kind of out of sync with other parts of the state of Wisconsin. So when you think about all of those yeah. things, it's surprising to kind of point to Madison's segregation, like it's residential segregation throughout mm. the city. And then when you think about preschool, it's kind of, kind of disappointing, I guess. Um, and talking to some folks in Madison who've now read the book, they're like, okay, like, I guess it's comforting that we're not so out of sync with the rest of the country. But on the other hand, here we are making these investments, trying to make preschool really good. And we've, we have these two five-star high-quality programs, and yet things are really different. Um, so it's kind of a non-answer answer, <laughs> but I don't think of Madison as like that distinct like more extreme in its segregation or, yeah, like an outlier basically it's kind of typical in a lot of ways
0: yeah yeah and you know when you do look at the data you know you have data in the book but you also look at you know if you look at national data too like the story is similar like pretty much what you're saying is that you know you mm-hmm. can go to yeah. California you know i'm in southern california and it's even really segregated mm-hmm. here and so, you know, from my experience, yeah. I've worked in state-funded preschools yeah. and I've worked in privately funded preschools. I haven't worked in a Head Start yet. So that's, you know, one area, one aspect of education that I don't have the most experience in, but, you know, state-funded and, you know, federal-funded, they have similarities in some ways. Um, but yeah, those experiences are very different. And so, you know, you can even tell like just the diversity in you know, students in those, you know, state funded, because usually for lower income and across, you know, the United States, the data is fairly similar, right? Low income families tend to be of color. Um, And, you know, you see in the privately funded preschools, it's usually upper middle class, you know, to, you know, more very wealthy families that can afford to have privatized preschool. And the experiences Mm -hmm. are just very, very different. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. You know part of the reason that I was really enjoying reading the book because it did it mirrored those experiences that I saw and I know that educators are experiencing and it's a world that like not everyone gets to see both sides of right so if you're a, yeah. hey, if you're a parent yeah. you often don't get to see both sides of you know state funded and privately funded you know you usually get to see one of those, and like if you're a student, you usually get to see one mm-hmm. of those um and so it's mm-hmm. it's pretty fascinating to see what those differences are um and mm-hmm. you know. Another thing that I did really appreciate the book about about the book too was that you go into the history of childcare, like in the United States, and throughout all of my classes, I've learned a lot about theory. I've learned a lot about practice. I've learned a lot about, you know, even social justice theory and all these different things. But there was so much I didn't know about the inception of childcare and early childhood Mm -hmm. in the United States. And so that was super fascinating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just.
1: Yeah, I kind of went on a fact-finding mission about, like, am I, am I, I was like, you know, let me not differentiate by type. So at first, my, I was like, should I only look at things that call themselves preschool, you know, going back in time in the U.S.? What, what did the earliest preschools look like? But you actually can't do that because there's such a um, fraught landscape about what group care is. So I just looked for any example of group learning and care like when do people get groups of kids together that were under age six um to care for them to educate them or Mm -hmm. both and yeah it turns out it's been segregated by social class and by race Mm -hmm. since the 1830s pretty much right um yeah
0: and that is yeah that is wild and then knowing of course of course you know we know that you know it's been a predominantly, you know, female dominated fields for so long. And then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like that is why, you know, we see some of like the kind of pay disparities today. And that's why we see, you know, some of the perceptions about, you know, early childhood and early care and preschool teaching that we see today. And it's, you know, because of mm-hmm. the history of it. But, you know, there's so much that I didn't know about. And I learned about from just reading, like, you know, that chapter of the book where it talks about, you know, how did we get here? And I love that as just like a learning nerd. I was like, wow, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Was there anything that, you know, as you were writing it and doing your research that was um, like really new to you or anything that was super fascinating as you were kind of writing that section?
1: Um, Yeah, there's a book called the transatlantic kindergarten. That's about the foundation of kindergartens, which a lot of educators know, like that concept comes from, Um, Frederick Froebel in Germany, but learning about the women who taught kindergarten in Germany and then the women in the U.S. who wanted to learn this pedagogy and be kindergarten Mm -hmm. teachers, it was actually like a kind of womanist, maybe modern day feminist movement um, of women who valued early childhood education and wanted to teach in this really specific way. And yeah, that that book blew my mind. Um, Learning that aspect of it, like thinking of kindergarten, it's not as something, I mean, they are something offered to children, but like that had this deep meaning for the teachers that learned about it. Um, But then it's kind of a depressing story because as many of us know, then kindergarten got like kind of sucked up into the public school system and kind of became a lot of what, the opposite of what these um, kindergarten activists, they, they, they were called kindergartners, the teachers were called kindergartners, like what they didn't want it to yeah. be, which is sitting in a desk, like more sitting in a mm-hmm. desk, more organized instruction and less of this like child led play based um, approach. So that is
0: so fascinating. <laughs>
1: it's kind of random. You might want to cut that. Out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to keep it there. in there. Like now I
0: want to check out this book. Like I want to know more about like mm-hmm. just, of course, like the inceptions of it. Because I love I love education. I love early childhood And, you know, part of advocacy is just wanting it to be the best version of, you know, whatever it is that it Mm -hmm. can be. And I think when we know where something came from and we know, you know, where the issues are and kind of like the very inception of it, like that helps us to then kind of redirect and say like, okay, where are we now? Where do we want to be? What was our intention for us to be here? Right. And so these are really just great questions for us to start asking. (laughs)
1: Hmm. And I do think there's lessons for early childhood folks in that mm-hmm. story of kindergarten of women learning this pedagogy, understanding early childhood development, designing this experience this kindergarten experience, and then for better and for worse, it getting kind of co opted or integrated into an existing K twelve mm-hmm. system. Like one of the things that happened with that transition is you went from these small women run kindergartens um, to k-12 schools which even at that time the principals were mostly men who didn't necessarily have the same values in early childhood anyway so i think about that a lot with um places where we're expanding 4k Mm -hmm. and four-year-old kindergarten and there's this impulse to be like let's just bring four-year-olds into elementary schools and oh let's bring Mm three-year-olds in too and do 3k and um you kind of brush past all of these community-based preschools mm-hmm. providers. A lot of them are women, they're women-owned businesses. They, they know a lot about early childhood and, and it kind of delegitimizes those folks and adds legitimacy to the 4k teachers yeah. and also creates these wage gaps where you can make more money doing similar work, right? If you're doing it at the elementary mm-hmm. school versus down the street in a, a community-based program. Um, so, yeah, yes,
0: that's, You know, I know there's states, you know, popping up kind of the last couple of years, uh, even before 2020 of, you know, here in in California, we're calling it, you know, universal, universal transitional kindergarten, which is pretty much exactly what Mm -hmm. you're mentioning is expanding Mm -hmm. transitional kindergarten. So kindergarten generally starts about age five. And so before it was, you had to be, you had to turn five, you know, at least between September and December in order to qualify Or yeah, to turn five in order to qualify for transitional kindergarten, Um, and then uh, before that, you know, you didn't qualify for it. So you know, parents either had to do state funded or they had to do private funded until they can go qualify for kindergarten. So transitional kindergarten was kind of this like in between area, but it was only for a certain select you know group of kids who could qualify for it. Um, And so now Mm -hmm. they've expanded that so all four year olds can go to transitional kindergarten. And so now we're kind of seeing that it's been co-opted is exactly what you're saying. It's being co-opted into this K through 12 space. And we're seeing a lot of hiccups with that because like, as you're saying, there's these pay gap disparities. And so, you know, with California, you have to have a, you know, a multi-subject teaching credential in order to qualify to teach TK. Even though you have early childhood educators who oftentimes for the most part actually have degrees in early childhood education even have advanced degrees in early childhood education and have been doing this job for multiple years who suddenly aren't qualified to teach a group of kids that they have been teaching and been teaching very well mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and mm-hmm. then there's also a lot of concerns from family childcare and family daycare owners because again that's you're taking out a large subset of their of their business and taking it into transitional kindergarten and then there's also those mm-hmm. other, like the main concern is, is this developmentally appropriate? Because if we're doing transitional kindergarten mm-hmm. and we're basically just treating it as kindergarten, but they're four, yeah. you know, and then they're wanting to expand it to all three-year-olds right. and like, we're getting younger and younger and younger, but is it actually yeah. developmentally yeah. appropriate what we're doing? And so there's been a lot of hiccups with like the rollout. I know in California, it's just, that's what I'm kind of seeing and that's what I'm experiencing, but I know other States are trying to roll this out. And so it's, just, it's fascinating and it's something that, you know, I know that we are currently advocating for. So I'm part of the local planning council. And so we are trying to do our best to advocate for those family child care owners. We're trying to do our best to advocate for, you know, privately owned centers and also for those students to make sure that they're getting still high quality care and that it's developmentally appropriate for where they are in life, that they're not sitting at desks all day, that they're still getting time to play. Cause that's, that's what we know, like their learning comes through their play. Um, again Mm i need to step down off my my soapbox now (laughs) i just got all passionate about it (laughs) um so redirecting back to the wonderful of this book so you know you looked at two different preschools you looked at you know the great beginnings which was the privately funded preschool um, and then you looked at a head start in the area as well. And so, you know, you went through your experiences both on how the teachers treated you and how the teachers interacted with the students, but also, you know, went over this really great kind of neon- nuance with head starts in that, you know, it's geared towards low income families. And so there are, you know, really great benefits that you get with that in terms of services and sort of, you know, more screenings and support in some ways. But also that means, you know, families are hyper surveillance. So can you talk a little bit about just, you know, these differences between
1: how these families were treated in each program?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, and so Head Start's interesting to me to think about, because my sociological take on this is basically, what kind of group life and social setting are these classrooms, and is preschool for families like how do families experience preschool as a social space or as like if you want to be poetic about it, which I like to be as if you think of the village it takes to raise a child right and you've got the family and they take their kid to Head Start every day. Head Start's kind of in their village. What is it like for them? Um, and on the family side, um, what I observed is that there's some unintended consequences of policies that are like seem to have the intent of inclusion or fairness and even family engagement. But that just cause we can say, Oh, this is why we're setting up a home visiting mm-hmm. policy, or this is why we don't want to celebrate holidays mm-hmm. at school. Like it doesn't mean that intention will match on to how families experience it. Um, yeah. And so I don't know, I could talk about holidays or <laughs> The home visits, I don't know if any of those pique your interest more.
0: (laughs) I mean, they they technically both pique my interest more, but I think it, like I said, I've done both. So like I did home visits as a, you know, Uh a private preschool teacher and, you know, that was, it was like, you know, let's get to know your students. You get to know me, I'm in your home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I see Mm -hmm. the benefit of that when I was working in that setting. And then kind of the more that mm-hmm. I'm learning more about culturally relevant practices and the more I'm learning about it, I haven't done home visits within the um, the state funded preschool world. And I don't know if that was something, I don't think that was a practice that we did in that school that I worked with, but mm-hmm. I can see that being something that can be a little off putting for a family of like, well, why are you coming mm-hmm. here? You know, just being really skeptical mm-hmm. of that. And so Just, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in the private preschool, it was very welcoming, like, yeah, come on over, come to our house, you know, come see his bedroom, Mm -hmm. come see the toys. But I can also see that being something of Mm -hmm. like, why why are you doing this? Like, are you going to report us? Like, what are you going to do? So if you want to talk a little bit about that experience, like, that's something that Mm -hmm. I didn't experience. And so I'm wondering, like, what is the implication with that, too?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So home visits are one example. Um, Head Start families are supposed to experience two home visits Mm -hmm. per year the intention of the home visit is to increase communication and closeness between the family, the child and the school. And it can really have that effect, right? That like your teacher comes to your house, you, you can show her your toys. Um, you just kind of learn things about each other when you share space. And, you know, think about it, it, it for, uh, with preschool, like the families are coming every day into that setting, but teachers never see families' yeah. homes. So and, so it's just supposed to be like a family engagement practice. Um but you got to place it, for me, in, in the context of how families experience mm-hmm. privacy and surveillance. And this differs a lot by race and by social class. Um, so there's, there was variety at Head Start. Like, it's, I don't want to say at all that the families all hated the home visits or were like, felt like they were being judged. Um, but I think it's telling that, um, at least at the school that I observed with the home visit um, practice, they wanted the first one to be at the family's house. And then the second one, the families could choose if they wanted to have it at the at the preschool, at a park, um, at McDonald's or at their house. Okay. And the school social worker said that most families chose somewhere else for the second home visit. Okay. Um, yeah. And so it just it makes me think a little bit about choice and surveillance. Yeah. And we know from other research and some of us from personal experience that when you're a family in poverty, there's lots of people kind of coming mm-hmm. at you with scrutiny. Yes. Um, seeing what seeing your life is risky, worrying if your children are neglected, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's just a the 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 kind of fear or possibility of child productive services being involved in your life is much closer to home for poor families and for Black families and Hispanic families and Indigenous families, right? And so that kind of just comes up for some people when uh, an authority figure comes to visit your house and if you're affluent and white, you might not be in that, you might not have a family history of CPS or like really have that on your mind that maybe the teacher will see something that they find to be lacking and judge you for it. Um, Yeah. And so when I went to great beginnings, I was like, you know, so what do you guys do here? When, when might a teacher come into a family's home and as a private school, they didn't choose to do home visits. And so that meant that the only time a teacher would come to your house, if you were a great beginnings kid, is if your parents um, hired a teacher mm-hmm. usually to come babysit yeah. you, right? So it's like a, a chosen and invited thing. Yeah. It's all in your terms versus a like, hey, this is something you agree at Head Start. It's you agreed to do these home visits as part of being in the program. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's one example. And the other the other one of kind of unintended policy implications was holidays. Mm-hmm. So Head Start had adopted this, uh, policy I'm not actually sure if it's a federal like in the federal program or just this head start that I was in um in Madison but they did not they didn't want the classroom to celebrate holidays unless they got parent permission so they said you know and the and the point of this is basically pluralism right that you don't want to make some people feel unwelcome you don't want to privilege religiously overtoned or even secular holidays that not everyone does so they said you can do holidays but we want you to ask every single parent first and if everyone says okay then you can do it and the head start teachers were like we're drowning in paperwork over here like we track all these interventions we track the meal count um we track development we do gold notes yeah. like and so the idea for them of doing another layer of paperwork basically to have fun mm-hmm. it, it just wasn't appealing um and in the book, I talk about one of the moms, I, I her pseudonym is uh, Brianna, who had sent her kids to Head Start for 10 years. She had three kids and the policy had changed while she had been there. And so she has three kids and her youngest kid, Sean, is in Head Start. And there's this kind of moment where she is in the classroom and she's like, what happened to Mother's Day presents? Um, and they're like, what do you mean? And she's like, I, I like you guys usually make something for Mother's Day. And the teachers are like, oh, you know, well, we change—they—they change the policy, and we can't celebrate holidays, mm-hmm. especially things like Christmas. And Brown is just like, well, can't you just, like, he's scribbling at here? can't you just put Happy Mother's Day on it? I save these, I look yeah. forward to them. And the teachers are like, we can ask about it, we'll see. But they're—they're they're feeling frustrated because it's like we're here under this paperwork, yeah. and this isn't really our priority to make crafts for mm-hmm. you, you know. Brianna and some of the other parents experienced this lack of holidays as like distancing, you know, it could have been Mother's Day could be something that kind of brings them closer, Mm -hmm. makes Brianna feel seen by the school. And instead it's like forbidden Mm -hmm. or you have to do paperwork. Um, And then the contrast that I saw is going to great beginnings where they're private, they make their own rules. And what they decided is, I mean, they didn't do a ton of holidays, but they did acknowledge Halloween and Valentine's day. And for each of those, they would have parties the parents would donate, they'd bring supplies, they'd come to the school for the party. Actually, my kid is having, my kid basically goes to a, a Great Beginnings type of school here in New Hampshire and they're having a Valentine's party tonight <laughs> that like, is ju- yeah, it's gonna be very cute, but I just keep thinking like, yeah, here we are having this experience of being able to come together and celebrate and um, yeah, we're able to do that because it's it's a school of mostly affluent and white families. Yeah.
0: It's, I remember. Oh, and not,
1: sorry, not with this private, this funding mandate that kind of prevents us from doing holidays. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so when I worked at a state funded preschool, it was kind of the same thing is that, you know, we didn't talk about holidays and we didn't talk about, um, you know, like, I don't think they did mother's day and stuff like that. Cause for that same reason you mentioned, like they didn't want anyone to feel left out or excluded. So they Mm -hmm. just kind of didn't talk about it at all. And I can see, I can see the logic, <laughs> you know, I see why. And then mm-hmm. I also agree from that paperwork perspective, because when I worked there, there was a lot more paperwork, like you said, with the meal counts, yeah. um, you know, with the IEPs and with the DRDPs. And like, it was just the teachers were constantly busy doing something right and so Mm -hmm. you know one it's great to have that data because that's you know with data we then go into funding and we can go into resources and all those other things but at the same time it's like and so i know there's a lot of paperwork that goes into you know working in state-funded preschools and so it makes it really difficult to really add another thing on top of that and when i was working in privately funded and we did do holidays it was kind of it was a big to do like there was a lot you know we would have fundraisers Mm. and so we'd have to do like the art show and so we'd have to like have the kids create art for that and try to still do that in a developmentally appropriate way and still do that in a play-based way while still also like okay I need you to create like five pieces of art like each everyone needs to create much art so it was just a lot of that and then during you know Mother's Day and Father's Day and stuff like that it was a lot like it's a lot you have so many students and you have to create so many different things and again still trying to do that in a way that is child-led there's a, there's a lot that goes into it when you're doing holidays so mm-hmm. I can kind of see when you know the, the easier way would just be like we're not going to do it Um but at the same time like I remember being a student and holidays were really fun and even if it wasn't a holiday that I celebrated it was still pretty just like fun to learn about and like have a little break from school you know like those are usually Mm -hmm. just days when you just didn't do that much like traditional learning and you just got to like have fun or have a little party or do like a little fun thing and so even my students would just love it it was just a little bit of a break from the day-to-day routine and
1: Mm -hmm.
0: it's it's hard like it's hard especially as you mentioned in the book when you're not doing those holidays and there's other rules like you know you can't bring toys into school and you you know you're not really able to kind of personalize that free school experience and personalize your school experience and for a lot of students you know they're at the schools for a large portion of their day and so that that is kind of hard when you're not able to personalize that you're not able to bring Mm -hmm. in something that's exciting to you or something that you want to talk about and it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard because then you just kind of as a teacher you just kind of you have to skirt past it because you're you've you can't talk Mm -hmm. about it or when I worked at Mm -hmm. you know a a Jewish preschool you know the kids would come in they'd be like for Christmas I'm gonna do this and I'm just like (laughs) you know like um (laughs) (laughs) so anyways um and so it's it's hard because they're excited and they want to talk about it they want to bring in you know their personal experiences and you know, as adults, that's something that we do to connect with each other. We bring our personal experiences and we talk about those, and it, it offers a way for us to connect. And, you know, when I do a training, I do this, you know, kind of talking about different identities. And so we have our personal identities and you have your social identities. And, you know, your personal identities are things like your name or your place in the family or your interests and in your talents, right? Like, those are things that make you an individual right but then your social identity so that might be the religion or your culture or your background um, or your language like those are things that give you a sense of belonging and so both of those Mm -hmm. those parts of your identity are really important and especially the way that we connect with ourselves and other people like they're very very important and so it is a kind of a big question on when we do ban talking about you know holidays or talking about Um, you know cultures are talking about just things like that like what is that kind of saying on that larger scale and what are students actually learning Mm -hmm. about themselves and each other Mm -hmm. when we aren't talking about those things and when these things are kind of like Mm -hmm. off to the sidelines it's I can yeah I can Mm -hmm. go on that for like days because I'm just like I'm curious about (laughs) this
1: yeah yeah and on that one it's you would wonder like what's the answer because I actually wouldn't say either I wouldn't say let's have these kind of Consumery Valentine's Day parties everywhere mm-hmm. um, nor would I, I probably actually say ban, ban yeah. it. I just I just think about the way that the Head Start so the lead teacher at Head Start liked holidays a lot. She's like I'd love to celebrate Halloween and they, they could in the past but now they couldn't so she had like she would wear an orange shirt and she'd be like we're gonna di- dissect pumpkins because yeah. that's okay because that's science as long as we don't carve faces in them and make them jack-o'-lanterns mm-hmm. So anyway it could have been something she could take creative license with and she could find a way she like maybe could have done the paperwork to ask mm-hmm. families if they felt okay yeah. with it but for her that this one thing this mother's Day card moment was like mm-hmm. in a broader context of her being slammed with paperwork yeah. um, and the paperwork thing a, another reader put this in really stark terms for me like I don't even say it this starkly mm-hmm. in the book but we were talking about communication with parents and how like Head Start tried to send newsletters, but didn't really get around Mm -hmm. to it. They didn't send a lot of photos. Um, This kind of made the parents, some of the parents sad, but they had to do all this paperwork for the state. And so then I go to Great Beginnings and I'm like, what paperwork do you do? And I see that they send um, monthly newsletters like clockwork. Mm -hmm. They send a weekly email with, here's everything we did. Here's pictures of your individual children. They would write down who napped at nap time, which was not required by like licensing Mm -hmm. Like, heavy communication. And so, at Great Beginnings, I was like, how do you feel about this paperwork, though? Like, come on. This seems kind of annoying to write all these newsletters. And they're like, no, we love it. It's, like, creative and it's fine. Anyway, and what a reader said to me was like, oh, yes, this makes sense because both schools are just communicating with their funders. Head Start's communicating to the state who's funding it. And the private preschool's communicating to the parents because the parents are funding the preschool. Yeah. I was like... (laughs) i mean yikes yeah basically
0: yeah you're not wrong
1: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
0: no that is super fascinating because again i in my private preschool you know world i did a lot of that i did a lot of newsletters and you know we used this app where you could communicate with you know the parents and i would always like every day i would write these like paragraphs to the parents and just like okay this is what we said at circle time this is the activities we did and this is how it connects to the preschool foundations and so it's not like I didn't have a lot of like mandatory paperwork that I was doing within the private preschool, but I did still do a lot of like paperwork and a lot of things and a lot of documentation and we still did parateacher conferences. And so we still did a lot of things and like lesson planning and stuff, but it wasn't required. So the stress of it was less because it was just something Mm -hmm. I was doing because I kind of wanted to do it. It wasn't required of me. Like, you know, my Mm -hmm. director never said, Mm -hmm. I need you to write newsletters. I need you to do this. It was just, Oh yeah, like parents are curious about what we're doing and they're asking me questions. So mm-hmm. let me tell you what we're doing <laughs> rather than, you know, mm-hmm. in that state funded free school, it was mandatory. So again, you know, in order for them to have funding, they have to do these different things and it does take up and because mm-hmm. it's mandatory and because it's, you know, it's more like government forms and government
1: paperwork, like it's not fun.
0: Like mm-hmm. doing DRDPs mm-hmm. isn't fun. And you it know. Can- <laughs>
1: It can it can also undermine trust and make the teachers feel not trusted and not supported. Yes. So the lead teacher at Head Start, Miss Roxanne, she had her bachelor, she had eight degrees, eight years of experience, she knew her stuff. And her perspective was like, I know what's developmentally appropriate. I know how to engage with the kids. And I would say she was totally right. Like she was great with them. But she's like, But I spent half my time doing paperwork yeah. about what I'm going to do with the kids mm-hmm. and then what I did do with the kids. And I was there to see when she left, things were a little different. The assistant teachers didn't engage the kids in the same way. Mm-hmm. Like they did a great job, but they did it a little differently. Yeah. So from a policy perspective, it's it's just kind of ironic that like we layer on this paperwork to feel like we're getting our money's worth mm-hmm. out of something, some intervention that's been funded but it can have the consequence. I mean, one, it layers. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. Each individual program is like, let's do a dental hygiene intervention. Let's do a nutrition program. Let's do some mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And each one of them just wants like one form a week on how you implement it. But now this teacher has three additional forms she has to yeah. fill out, you know? Yeah. Um, and so she left, she left that the Head Start preschool. And this the paperwork wasn't the only reason, but it was mm-hmm. a factor. And she's she went to a preschool with um children who weren't in poverty and with a director that didn't, I mean, not, it wasn't state funded. And then she said she had a director that trusted her would come and observe from and be like, Oh great. You know what you're doing? Like, I don't need to see the lesson plans. I see that you, you know, respond to kids interests and, you know, know how to engage. And that like trust in her skill and her work meant so much to her as a teacher. Um, So it just, it bums me out that like, she's so talented Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Head Start kids kind of lost her experience yeah, because she went somewhere with less paperwork where she was trusted. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: and that happens you know, surprisingly often right, and so for as expensive Mm -hmm. as, you know preschool is and childcare is in general, you know, preschool teachers don't generally get paid that much, you know
1: Yeah, Um, no matter where they work you you just don't get paid very much whether you're in,
0: you know, private or publicly Mm -hmm. funded But I will say that Head Start Mm -hmm. has been actively trying to, you know, increase funding so that they can pay teachers more. And when I worked, you know, the Mm -hmm. highest wage I ever made was working with a state funded preschool. And so like Mm -hmm. on the bright side, you have that, but then on the other side, it's, I didn't see the same caliber of teachers. So, you know, both, you know, forms like, you know, in the state funded and the privately funded, you had educators who were very educated and you had educators who had been in the field for years. Right. But then, it's just kind of different in the caliber of teachers that you're getting because the teachers that I worked with in private preschools were so creative. They came up with these like crazy mm. ideas. Like every week we'd come in and they're like, okay, so I went over here and I got a stick or I got these sticks from the beach and we're going to paint them and we're going to do like so creative, so many ideas and just this, this, this just like flavor for life was happening. But then I walk into these state funded preschools and so in that, in that environment, I wasn't a teacher per se but i was kind of a coordinator so i would go to different classrooms and so i'd see like different you know how teachers were working in these different classrooms but because there's so it's so strict on what you can do even the materials that you are in the classroom you can't really bring in extra materials like you have to work with what you have and so in, mm-hmm. a, in a lot of different ways it kind of dulls down what the teachers can do and it dulls down how creative you can Mm. be you can only be so creative when you Mm. only think inside of a box right and so like you know i still saw teachers you know doing the best that they could with what they had but again they're still really really confined and again there's all that paperwork and additional things that you have to do so even if you do plan a really great lesson you're probably not the one who's really able to reap the benefits of seeing the kids enjoy that activity because you're okay, I got to prep for this. I got to plan for this. I got to do, I got to make sure I write down all of these different things. And so you're not getting that same kind of one-on-one interaction with the students as they're engaging with this thing that you work so hard for them to be able to do. And it's just, it's such a fascinating difference to really see. And again, it's great to see in a book because I'm like, I've seen these things. I've seen both of these things happen in real time. And it's, Just fascinating to know that this is, you know, not a unique experience. Like this is happening in other places too. And other people are getting to see this and it's, it's interesting. (laughs) To say the least. Yeah. And so in terms of, you know, looking at policies and looking at, you know, what schools and what teachers and center directors can do, you know, what kind of policies or practices do you think they can put into place that can either kind of invite or discourage students from their different social classes to kind of bring their full selves to school?
1: Mm. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that integration matters. Mm -hmm. I I do, I always think there's a role for um, culturally affirming preschools for kids of color I think that's great like if it's kind of on purpose and you know you're like we I have a program where we speak all in Spanish and the families are all Mexican and we can share our culture here and you know I think that's great um there's some preschools that are like for black children and they're really pro-black and like great representations of all the awesome things about being black. Like I would love to send my kids to a preschool like that. And I think they can do real good. There's empirical evidence that they um, can be really beneficial for children. So that's great. But accidental racial segregation where we just like, it wasn't on purpose. It wasn't for the goal of like affirming the identities of kids of color. Um, And then class segregation for me There's no role for that. There's no actual reason for it. The Head Start's reason for class segregation, right? Because to Head Start programs, 90% of the kids are supposed to be in poverty in most Head Start centers. Um, The reason to do that is because it's efficient, because we want to bring these services to kids in poverty. We want to give whole child supports and whole family supports, and it costs money to do that. So I think the logic is like, well, let's put 17 poor kids in a class, and then we can bring all of these supports to the one room. And my research suggests that there's many unintended social consequences of, like, clustering kids in that way. Um, and I think it's convenient for these programs that are, have all affluent children. Like, I don't think there's a good reason to have programs where all the children are middle class. So, so sorry, to your question, like, the intersections of race and class and early childhood education, I think there is an extremely, like, important benefit to working to create more integrated programs. And I think social class is actually the easier way to start because th- that will help with some providing some access to um, poor families of color as well. But because mo- ma- many preschools in the US are privately funded and privately operated, like the cost and subsidy issue, like that is going to be a barrier. And so preschools have to meaningfully think about, especially the private programs. How am I making this program inviting and accessible yes. to to poor families? Um, and there's different, like, there's different categories, right? There's poor families that might qualify for a subsidy. So then you're dealing with, like, and I know it's not easy, but you're dealing with all the issues of preparing to accept the subsidy, um, doing all that paperwork. And then there's also this role, I think we don't talk about enough, of um, middle-income families, yes. like, not affluent families but families that do not qualify for mm-hmm. subsidies and they also cannot pay $1500 a month in yeah. tuition right um yeah i think it's i think it's like in a sneaky way making the class segregation we do see in preschool much more mm-hmm. extreme so that the families in my field site at Great Beginnings like they weren't middle class they were upper middle class or affluent like taking vacations to Disney World second yeah. homes you know so so anyway if you're a center director like think about is my program inviting and accessible mm-hmm. to low income students and to middle income students? Um, yeah, in great beginnings, they were like, yeah, we accept this, the chocolate subsidies, but we, we don't have any families that use them. And we had one, but they didn't stay very long. And for me, being, in the, being there and observing um, over the course of the month, I'm like, I kind of get that because the vibe in the school was like catered to families with money. They have things like, um, parents night out where you bring your kids on a saturday and you pay i don't know how much maybe 20 or 30 bucks um so you can go on a date Mm -hmm. night right which is just a super like classed experience like the idea that you someone has 30 dollars for date night and they have somewhere to go Mm -hmm. um just to go spend money or be on a date right having fundraisers having donation Mm -hmm. drives um can kind of send a message that like of course everyone here has extra to give yep. and is not actually in need. So just just kind of thinking like what might your school be communicating about who it's for and if you've dealt with a financial access access piece how can you make it socially inviting mm-hmm. to people who don't have a lot of extra money basically. Yeah.
0: Yes, I think that's such a great point because Obviously, the subsidies are great and and one of the beautiful things that i think about when i think about early childhood is that there are so many different philosophies so if you want to do you know fully play days or you want to do montessori or you want to do reggio or you want to do you know whatever it is like you there are so many options right but that's only for a certain subset of families who can afford to Mm -hmm. have that right that idea of voice Mm -hmm. and choice right you have to have money to have voice and choice Mm -hmm. basically and if you don't, mm-hmm. then you get head start, you get nothing, right? Uh, or you can get subsidies mm-hmm. to go to either, you know, family child care, or you can go, you know, to a private funded, you know, school that accepts subsidies. And again, there's so much that goes into mm-hmm. accepting those subsidies and there's so much mm-hmm. paperwork. And mm-hmm. it's often, often has a lot of work for like very little benefit to the actual, you know, childcare, you know, owner or provider, right? And so you don't see totally. a lot of them utilizing it because it's frankly a pain in the butt. So, you know, mm-hmm. that also, you know, decreases access. And so, you know, but there's also that idea of like, okay, so so now you have a child, a low income child in your, you know, in your center. Great. Now what? How do we make it inviting? Exactly what you're saying. How do we make sure that the families feel like they're welcome there, that they feel like they belong there? How do we make sure that the child feels like they're welcome there and that they belong there, right? So if you accept one subsidized, you know, childcare thing, and everyone else in your classroom is, you know white upper class or affluent children and then you have this one poor black child you can't just you can't just like okay welcome to the class have fun there are things that you have to Mm -hmm. put in place to make sure that everyone's feeling welcome that they Mm -hmm. belong right because then you're not going to see people Mm -hmm. utilizing that because they don't feel like they belong there Mm -hmm. and that's looking at Mm -hmm. you know our teachers in the classroom there's going to be some additional training that you're going to need to do in order to make sure that you are incorporating practices in that classroom that are culturally relevant, culturally sustaining, culturally responsive, um, that you're incorporating, you know, books in your classroom and resources in your classroom and toys in your classroom. Right. And that you're talking to these families, like there's so much that goes into it. So you can't just like do it and then walk away and like, okay, I did a good deed. Like I have in my classroom now. Wonderful. It's like, well, well, no, (laughs) like, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can't just have one of them and say, you've met your quota. Like that's, weird and wrong. So there's just things that need to go into place in order for that to be actually effective and it actually have the benefits that we know that it can because we know that when schools Mm -hmm. are fully inclusive, the benefit to all of the students and all the families is so immense. Right. We know there's a lot Mm -hmm. of learning, a lot of really great opportunities and beautiful things that happen when we have fully inclusive environments and fully inclusive schools. And so like you're saying, that's looking at socially, that's looking at, you know, class, that's looking at race. That's also looking at, you know, special needs. That's looking at ability, right? So when we have schools that are fully inclusive, it's a beautiful, amazing experience. But it does take work to mm-hmm. get there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it adds like kind of why I, I think integration would be so helpful is it, it adds a challenge for teachers mm-hmm. to just rethink some of the like routines and the practices in the classroom that you could do that. You could sit there and try to, you know, rethink or modify practices, even if you teach in an all white, all affluent school, but by having like an actually integrated group of kids, the challenge, the challenges are more real basically. And you go into like problem solving mode. You might get new ideas from the families and the kids um, in your school. Um, So yeah, I won't, I will not, I'm not a teacher not cut out to be a preschool teacher (laughs) i'm not going to claim to have the answers there um but but yeah i will just like advocate for center directors in particular like working on this working on this challenge of um being open and available Mm -hmm. to a broader range of families because i do think that matters i think there's this thing in ece probably because of um quality rating and improvement systems Mm -hmm. right and some of these checklists that want you to have culturally diverse books and like diverse food in the in the house area which does matter like i'm not saying take that stuff out but it leads to this okay we have the colors of us we have sushi in the play area like check um And from Head Start did those same things from what I observed, like that is not a substitute for Mm -hmm. real challenging, messy conversations that you have directly with children and with families about like the real people, basically. Like we can't put in these abstract things as as materials and books and just have them available in the classroom Mm -hmm. and think that that is sufficient to like make the space inclusive. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Like that is again, I, I couldn't agree with you more like seeing the attempts to have more diversity in the classroom. Great. We want to see that. I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, stop doing that. No, please please keep doing that. (laughs) It's more of a yes and. So yes, do increase the visibility of diversity in the classroom. Yes. And also, let's make sure, like you're saying, we're having these conversations, that we're engaging authentically, that we're looking at our policies to make sure that we're not unintentionally alienating certain group within our classroom right and so that's really going to take a lot of internal work a lot of asking ourselves some questions about you know what beliefs do we have going into this what ideas do we have what stereotypes might we be inadvertently leaning into Um, and that's hard and that's messy work and it involves you know building a community that works with our families and really takes in all of their input and so it's I'm not going to sit here and say, this is an easy thing that you can just do this overnight and that, you know, you can like wave a magic wand and, oh, cool. I have now done diversity. So what's next? It's like, no, it's ongoing work. It's hard work, but it's important work. Right. And that is improving that access, improving that integration into our schools. That is, again, it is such a beautiful thing when we have fully inclusive and fully diverse schools. I've seen it. I've been there. It is a beautiful experience and seeing all of these students getting to play together with their differing abilities and having these conversations and incorporating those conversations and having them think about things in a very different way is such a beautiful and amazing experience that we don't see when we have schools that are fully segregated. Um, And on that topic, you know, you kind of mentioned a little bit about having school integration, but how do you reimagine education moving forward? What does the future of education look like?
1: Um, I'm going to answer this for early childhood and because I just, I think that's right. A a missing piece. I think, I think it's a missing piece. I try to see it as opportunity um, because when I talk about this, people are like, Oh, but segregation, like look at K-12 segregation. (laughs) Look at the deeply entrenched segregation we have in K-12. Folks have been trying to undo and fix that for decades. Right. Um, So then for me to come here and say, oh, you should also care about preschool segregation as well can feel impossible. But to me, it's actually very hopeful because we're in an expansion phase. Like we don't have preschool available to all children. There's not one city where like uh, all the four year olds attend preschool. Right. Many places are working on opening programs, adding funding, um, expanding the system. And so I think it's a great opportunity point to ask ourselves. What do we want this to look like? And to ask these deeper questions of, like, what does it mean for a classroom, a preschool classroom, to support children's dignity? What do children need to find these classrooms to be exciting, enriching, and affirming? And I do not think, I think, like, there's some merits to them, but I don't think we have that captured in uh, class Mm. or in the environmental rating scale or all these things we use to then assign stars and colors to like preschool. So I don't think that our quality metrics are the answer here. I think we can still ask for questions and educators and like center directors can, you know, just continue to touch base with like what their vision is for fully educating children. And then I think that we need to consider race and class integration as part of that. Um, Early childhood is not like uh, some weird post-racial utopia where kids won't see, won't see color unless we tell them about we reveal the fact of racism to them. Like it's, it's completely embedded in all the structural racism that the rest, the rest of us are dealing with. Um, so anyway, I, yeah, we, we need to like about 70% of kids go to preschool in the U S that means we have to build a lot more, yep. many more preschool environments. And I, I would love to see them support children's dignity, um, offer class and race integration Like, honestly, class integration for everyone. There's no reason, in my opinion, that um, poor children should be clustered in schools. They should have access to the full range of schools. Um, And then... I lost my train of thought. There was one more thing I was going to say. Oh, you know, we love a birth to five system. So preschool expansions, like... I, I don't... yeah. I don't want public schools to be the drivers of no, envisioning you. what preschool should look like. I think it's really, I think it's really dangerous um, because K-12 principals don't always get early childhood as a, like a special time of life. They don't understand these principles mm-hmm. necessarily. A lot of these buildings are not built for three and four year old bodies and they're definitely not built for two year old bodies. And so any like, I, I want to see like a childcare expansion, not just a preschool expansion. And we have to think about births to five. Like, yeah, seeing this in Colorado was, was kind of wild. I previously lived there and was kind of in there watching them. They're expanding access to preschool right now. Um, so I don't want to see a system where we have preschool for all or for most, but if your child's one or two, like there's nothing and there's nobody, you know, because all of those, providers in those uh, care and education settings have been decimated when funding just gets funneled to age four. So yeah, I want us to think about education starting from birth and um, enhancing dignity for babies, for toddlers, for preschoolers. And then K-12, you know, there's lots to think about there, but we can do this with early childhood. We can figure this out. I I I believe that. And I love that you've switched it into thinking about it as,
0: you know, a place of hope and a place of opportunities because that's exactly what it is. Um, we can get discouraged by it but it, it is a space of hope like there we have such an opportunity to refine the field and make it inclusive and really change it for how we see early childhood to be and I know we have you know something here I, I think it's kind of national but you know the p3 alignment so it's like prenatal to kind of third grade really incorporating that all mm-hmm. of that early childhood frame mm-hmm. and that we can't forget about our infants and toddlers like their education is also important. Mm -hmm. And infant toddler teachers Mm -hmm. are teachers, like they are important and they Mm -hmm. provide such a valuable, you know, environment and opportunities for these, you know, young growing minds. And so, yes, incorporating that and really just thinking of early childhood, you know, not just preschool, the whole, the whole thing, all of it is such an incredible Mm -hmm. time of life and there's so much learning. There's so much growing. We need to focus on it and, we have so many great minds out there that are thinking about this and are proposing really great thoughts. And so I want to thank you so much for, for joining me and for, you know, releasing this really beautiful book again, please read it. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Brittany. Yes, thank you. Um, so where can my audience find you? Are you working on anything, anything you want to kind of share before we, we close out?
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the best place to find me right now is my website, which is just caseystockstill dot com. Um, and what I'm working on is I did a follow up study, asking like taking the questions that arose when I spent these two years observing, um, preschools in Madison. I just wondered like, what do these patterns look like if I if I was able to engage with more schools? And so I, um was fortunate to get about 60 private preschools in Denver to participate in a study where like I did a survey of the directors I interviewed uh teachers of four-year-olds at those same centers and then I'm doing like a content analysis of their websites and how they market themselves to families mm-hmm. so the big questions are basically like how do when we divide a these schools and think about the race and the class mm-hmm. Of the students they serve, yeah. you know, what, dif- what differences might we see in how they engage with families, how they set up teachers' uh, work experiences, mm-hmm. um, and how they organize children's time? So I'm actively analyzing that right now. That's been really fun, and I'm hoping that I'll be writing some stuff about that soon. So my website's the best place to kind of see what's coming out on this project
0: awesome awesome and I will put that in the description box or the the show notes so you can kind of check that out and see what Casey's up to um and then if you want to check out um her book I've added it to my kind of bookshop link so it's it'll be right there so you can click on it and it says you know conscious friends so all the the book people that I talk to I'll try to add their books to that so it'll all kind of be in a nice little little contained box <laughs> <laughs> please go check it out and thank you so much Casey for joining me it was such a pleasure speaking with you and just being able to fangirl over this book has <laughs> been amazing um, and thank you so much for joining
1: you're welcome thanks Brittany this was really really fun and enriching yeah, thank you so much yay
0: Thank you for tuning into Conscious Pathways. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Conscious Pathways wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to share or leave a rating. It really does help the podcast to grow and reach more listeners just like you. if you are interested in checking out Casey's book, Fall Start, you can click the link in the show notes or the description box. Uh, it'll take you to my bookshop.org uh, platform and you can check out all of the books that's under Conscious Friends. So any books that I have talked about or any authors I've talked to, their books will be linked directly there. Um, by purchasing the book through bookshop.org, you are supporting the podcast and you're also supporting independent, locally owned bookshops. So it's a really great way if you want to Um, just support beautiful things just like this and like small bookshops Um, so you can click that link below until next time navigate your conscious journey with courage and kindness I'll see you then for more transformative conversations in education bye